pray together. Our God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that as we read it, we are given life. We pray now that you would open our eyes to see the Bible and understand the Bible. And as we understand the Bible, know more of you and be brought closer to you so that in all these things we might know Christ and reflect Christ in our lives. We thank you for the people of this church today, even the women, the widows, even in our church, godly women. We pray that we would be a godly, uh, godly people that align ourselves closely to your word. Hear our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing in our series through the book of 1 Timothy, where we're working through this book chapter by chapter, and we're working through this series sort of asking the big question, which is, what is a healthy church? And we're reading this letter so that we might gain wisdom from the letter so that we might strive to become a healthy church. This week, we are in chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. This is the passage that Richard just read for us, and it's got a bunch of stuff about widows and what to do and, and all of that, and hopefully we'll make sense of all of that together in our time. As we've been talking through this letter of 1 Timothy, you've already heard that this church that 1 Timothy was written to, the church at Ephesus, was a complete mess. And we said that the reason that the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' apostles, wrote this letter to his apprentice or his deputy, the young pastor Timothy, was so that Timothy could read this letter and it might help him to get in there and fix the mess, or as we've been calling it, to repair the damage. Timothy's been charged through this letter to get in there and repair the damage that has happened in the life of this young church plant. Now, as you can imagine, as you've heard some of the things and the problems that are going on in this church, to do that is going to mean that young, timid Timothy is going to have to have some conversations and face things and deal with issues that he's probably not too excited to do. He's going to have to sit down with people that he's probably not excited to sit down with and confront things and have conversations and bring to light stuff that no one wants to talk about, things that are not going to be easy or comfortable. For example, if you read through the letter and you hear some of the verbs that Paul addresses to Timothy, you'll get a sense of this. Verbs like charge, charge them, Timothy, to stop teaching. Or verbs like urge or command or rebuke, right? When you hear those verbs of urge, command, rebuke, charge, what do all those verbs have in common? They're all going to require confrontation. They're all going to require a bunch of conversations that timid Timothy is not particularly excited to have or looking forward to have. So he, he's, he's working through all of this in his mind as the Apostle Paul has called him to this. And, and it's as if Paul knows this young apprentice of him, and, and he knows that he's got to help put some steel in his spine. So that's why he ends chapter 4, the passage right before what we're going to look at, by saying this, just hear it with me, it'll be on the screen. In chapter 4, he tells Timothy, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So here's the, what's happening. Timothy's a young pastor, and so the people that he's going to have to do these verbs with, these charging, this rebuking, this commanding, this urging, are likely in the church, many of them are going to be older than him. And so Paul knows 
that there's going to be a tendency in the heart of some of these older folks to say, what's Timothy going to say to me? To dismiss him because what does this kid know? He's just a kid, right? And so Paul needs to put some steel in his spine to say, don't let anyone dismiss you or despise you because of your youth. You've been called by Jesus, and I've charged you and appointed you to this work. So you get in there and command and charge and urge and rebuke. And you do that because that's what Jesus wants you to do. So if you picture Timothy, you can almost picture him with this letter, now in his room, pacing back and forth, getting himself ready for some of these conversations he's got to have, maybe even rehearsing the lines that he's going to say, building enough courage, and now he's ready to throw open the door and let them have it. He's going to give them a piece of his mind because that's what Jesus wants him to do. And just as he's about to throw open that door, Paul, because he's so wise, gives him one more word of guidance that he needs to hear. That's five verses one and two. This is what it says. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So as he's hot-blooded and ready to go out there, Paul's got to tell him, wait, 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 before you go out there, you're not going out there ready to rip into these people like they're beneath you. You're not going to go and lay into them that, like they're your subordinates. Timothy, you need to remember the church is a family, right? The, the church is a family because of the gospel, the good news, that God the Father sent his only son into the world to redeem all of us who were orphans spiritually and make us in the family of God. That adoption that God did means that we are all now family. And that good news of being family has to shape and inform everything that you do, Timothy, right? So this is good news, and some of you know that good news personally very well. The good news of the gospel is not just that we've been reconciled with God, but because we've been reconciled with God, we also got reconciled to one another. Some of you know that you grew up in homes that weren't great homes. You didn't have great biological or blood family. And yet what a gift it has been that you've been grafted in, adopted in, incorporated into a church family where you have brothers and sisters with Jesus' blood running through both of your veins. And that's been very good news. And so that reality, Paul says, Timothy has to shape how you talk to them. So when you approach the older men, don't lay into them, but instead treat them like you would a father, right? So if you could imagine you needing to go and correct your dad, imagine the knot that would be in your stomach as you're trying to work up the nerve to have this conversation. Maybe it's a conversation that needs to be had, but certainly you'd be very careful with the words that you say and you want respect to ooze out of that conversation. Everything has to be treated delicately because this relationship matters to you. This is dad. And Timothy is told, that's the same heartbeat you've got to have when you talk to the gray-haired men in the church. And likewise, when you talk to the older women, how do you talk to your mama? Well, that's got to inform and shape how you talk to the older gray-haired women in the church. These are mothers to you. And these younger men and women, your peers, they're not your subordinates. They are brothers and sisters that you've got to deal with in purity and talk with as though you're family. So, all of that has to shape how you address the church. 
Now, when we get to part two, we said already that we've divided this sermon series into two parts. When we get to part two, we're going to run through this letter again, cover some of the places we didn't touch, and we'll talk more then about the good news of what it means that the church is Jesus' family, and we're family together. So I won't say more on that except to say this, that as Paul starts talking about all these family relationships within the church, it brings to surface in Paul's mind a very important problem that he needs Timothy to address. I'll say that again. As Paul starts talking about family and family relationships within the church, it immediately brings to his mind a pressing problem that Timothy's going to need to get in there and address. A problem, or as we've been saying, it, a damage that he needs to repair. What is the damage? Well, let me read for you verses 3 through 8 so that you can hear it for yourself. It says this, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications, prayers, night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay. So again, Paul starts talking about family, and it brings to mind this problem that's happening in Ephesus that he needs to go and address, damage that he has to fix. What's the problem? If you can imagine, it's 65 AD. What's happening in Ephesus is basically the doorbell at the church rings, and so Pastor Timothy goes to open the door. He sees no one there. He's about to turn back in and walk inside, and all of a sudden, he hears a faint cry. And so he sees this bundle at the doorstep. He begins to unravel the bundle, and there he sees, to his shock and dismay, a weak, frail, 85-year-old widow, right? Rather than deadbeat kids, parents who are dropping off their kids, in Ephesus you had deadbeat adult children who were dumping off their aging parents to the church and saying, here you go, now it's your responsibility to take care of mom. Right? So in Ephesus, you had the church members, adult children, who rather than caring for their aging and widowed parents, were basically dropping them off at the doorstep of the church and then bailing and putting that responsibility onto the church. Now remember, to make sense of how messed up this is, that day is very different than our day, right? So back then, there's no social security or government programs. There's no pension plans or 401ks. There's no life insurance or disability insurance. There's no retirement homes or, or nursing homes or communities, none of it. In, in that day, none of the safety nets that we have today exist. So in that day, if you became widowed, if mom lost her husband, if you were a, a single mom with kids to feed, you suddenly became helpless. In that, in that day, you suddenly fell to the bottom of the social ladder. It, it meant for that kind of a woman that if you were going to have food on your table or a roof over your head, someone was going to need to step in and help because there was no way you were going to make it. In that day, 
to be a widow or an orphan throughout the scriptures in that culture, you'll see, is basically the bottom of the social food chain. They're helpless and they're hopeless. And if you understand that, then you begin to understand why widows and orphans have such a special place in God's heart. I want you to hear that again. When you read through the Bible, you're going to find that widows and orphans, folks that are marginalized among the community of God's people, are special, near, and dear to God's heart. There is a unique and special concern for widows in God's heart. And in our day, that would certainly translate over also to women who have been abandoned by men and husbands, single moms and the like. These folks hold a special concern and place in God's heart. And God was so serious and adamant about this that he commanded that they also hold a special place among God's people. If we're the family of God and God is dad, then what matters to dad needs to matter to the family. Dad's going to set the agenda for the family. And dad says that widows and orphans are near and dear to his heart. Let me give you some verses so that you hear it for yourself. In Psalm 68, verse 5, it says this, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Who is God? He's a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. Exodus 22, verses 22 to 24. Let me read you some of his law. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child if you do mistreat them. And they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. God is not playing around, right? You mess with a widow or a fatherless child, I promise you, I will kill you. And then your wife will be a widow, and your children will be fatherless. I mean, we could keep reading. In Deuteronomy, there was a law given that the people were supposed to tithe, that is, give some of their income to support God's work and God's people. And part of that tithe was reserved to feed the orphans or the fatherless or widows. And so it was, it was crystal clear to everybody in God's family that part of what it means to be in God's family is that the responsibility of the marginalized, whether it's widows or orphans or the fatherless, is our responsibility. It's our responsibility to care for these members in our family. And then when you bridge the gap between the Old Testament, the first half of our Bibles, and the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, what do you find? It's not as if that concern suddenly vanishes and goes away. Well, that was just an Old Testament God in his junior high years kinds of thing. No, when you get to the New Testament, you find that this thread continues all the way through. In fact, when God, whose heart reflects this concern, comes in the flesh as the person Jesus Christ, what do you find? You find exactly what you'd expect to find, that his heart has a special place for widows. For example, Jesus is walking and he sees a widow from a city named Nain, and he sees that her only son has passed away. And when he sees that, what's happening? It's not just a mother who's lost her son before his time. It's a widow whose also only support is now gone. And what does Jesus do? There's lots of sons that died in Israel, lots of sons still in the tomb, but Jesus sees that son and raises him from the dead. 
And doing that restores not just this son to his mother, but restores for this widow a means of survival and, and life. Or when Jesus wants to communicate a point, who does he often grab as a hero to illustrate his point? A widow. For example, when he wants to teach on what it looks like to persevere in prayer, he tells a story, and who's the heroine? He says there's this widow, and she would not stop asking, but she persisted in her request until she got what she wanted, and that is what you should be like. Or when he's talking about generosity, he'll grab his disciples and say, see that? You see how that widow gave two coins? And now when you understand it, you, you realize for a widow who had nothing to give her two coins truly was to say she was giving everything she had to the Lord. And Jesus pulls all his disciples and says, you see that? That widow's giving is how I want you to be giving. Or even when you consider how Jesus cared for his own widowed mother. When we read through the New Testament, we get the sense that Joseph, his father, passed away at some point in his life. And the responsibility of caring for Mary falls on Jesus' shoulders. Jesus takes that responsibility so seriously that he thinks of it even in the hour of his death. Do you remember that when he's on the cross, Jesus takes some breaths to utter some last words. And one of the last words that comes out of his mouth is he looks at his mom and he looks at his friend and he says to his best friend, she's now your mom. And he says to his mom, he's now your son. I'll tell you, as a two-second tangent, thinking through that was so influential for me that I literally went and got life insurance because of that passage, right? Because I began to see, when I look at the man Jesus Christ, here is a man who took so seriously what it means to care for those who were entrusted to him, that he was going to care for them, not just in his life, but even in the hour of his death. He was going to make sure that those who were entrusted to his care were provided for. And that began, for me, the picture of the kind of man that I want to be. Life insurance was a simple application of, Jesus has entrusted some folks to my care. I want to care for them in this life and even care for them in the hour of my death. That's the kind of man Jesus was. And when Jesus died... And Jesus rose again, and Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to start the church, the people of God, the household of God, the family of God. What do you find? This same concern. I can show you passage after passage. Acts 6, the early church is born. What do they have? A ministry to feed widows. James 1, verse 27, it's this apostle named James. He writes and he says, you know what real religion is? It's caring for the widow and the orphan." You can't have a faith that is not lived out, and this lived out faith cares for widows and orphans. Even our passage here in 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, it says, honor widows. That word honor is the same word that's given even in the Ten Commandments. One of the commandments is honor your father and your mother. And that word there is supposed to communicate this idea of weight. It's this weighty thing. Your parents and their words are not light. They're not just to be discarded or dismissed. They're weighty. They may not always be right, but when you hear their words, the idea is you take them with great weight. You consider them with great weight. But in 1 Timothy 5 verse 3, the word honor widows carries not just this inner disposition. It's got this sense of even financial support. For the sake of time, I won't go through it now, but as you read through the chapter and see the context, 
When he's saying honor widows, he's not just saying have this inner disposition. He's literally saying open your wallets and help support financially these widows. Now, I could say more, but here's what I want to say about this. Hopefully, through all of that, you can see that taking care of the marginalized, like single moms or widows or orphans, was such a no-brainer to God's family. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, we don't turn there now, it says that the church is the household of God. That's God's dad. We're his members. We're a part of his family. And it was such a no-brainer that if you were in the household of God, caring for widows was part of what it meant to be in his family. So, you can imagine how messed up it was when the members of the church at Ephesus not only didn't care for widows, but these widows were their own moms and their own grandmoms. Right? Rather than respecting the elderly aging parents that God had given them, rather than wrestling through with conversations about what it's going to look like to care for mom now that dad has passed. And those conversations are not easy. There's all kinds of complications and complexities. There's all kinds of things to be considered. And the reality is that some of us live in this broken world with broken relationships and broken families. But at the same time, these conversations, as complex as they may be, rather than them being had, in Ephesus, it was no thought whatsoever. In Ephesus, it was real simple. Dad died. That meant you packed mom's suitcase, put her in the minivan, put the suitcase in the minivan, drove her to the church, rang the doorbell, dropped her off, and then you ran. And Paul's saying to Timothy, uh-uh, that is not how the household of God acts. And if you're a member in God's family, that's got to stop. Timothy, you've got to get in there and repair this damage. This kind of neglect is not allowed. And he gives two reasons for why this neglect is so detrimental. I'll walk through them quickly with you. Here's the first reason why this kind of neglect is such an offense to God. It's because, first, this neglect was a burden on the church. This kind of neglect was a burden on the church. Listen to 5 verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Right? Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The first reason why this was such a problem is because this neglect ended up becoming a huge burden on the church. Here's what that means. The church, even if it had good intentions, had limited resources. That's just a reality. Right? It's a reminder that we're not God. God is unlimited in his resources, unlimited in his time, in his energy, in his capacity, in his capability. God can help everyone. There's no one that God has to say no to. We're not God. And so we don't have unlimited resources or time or energy. And so what that means is that every widow that the church said yes to support was necessarily a widow that the church had to say no to. That makes sense? For every widow that it did support, that meant that it had to say no to another widow because the church had limited resources, right? So every time it took in a widow, that was a widow that it had to not be able to take in. 
And we face that same kind of thing even among us. L let me give you an example. Semar Road Church, you are by God's grace and to his glory an incredibly generous church. We're three years old. Church plants that are three years old usually are still trying to receive funds just to maintain our own mission. You have given so generously in such a way that we not only maintain our mission, we tithe out to support other missions. In three years, you have given over $80,000 to give away outside of our church, outside of us, to other works and missions. That is to the glory of God. Now, as well-intentioned as we are, and as generous as we want to be, one of the realities we've come to see is for every place we say yes to, that is necessarily another place that we're going to end up saying no to. Because as generous as we want to be, the church's resources are limited. At some point, for every commitment we make, it's a commitment that we can't make. And so what we need, what we've discovered over these years, is we need some filters in place to help guide where we give and what we support. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. The church at Ephesus is taking in a bunch of these widows, and yet its resources are stretched to the point that because it's caring for the widow, whose son happens to be a CEO of a company and has shirked his responsibility and dumped mom to the church, it can't take care of the widow who has nobody and nothing. And so Paul says, you need some filters in place so that you can wisely do what God has called you to do. There's no doubt that caring for widows is at the heart of what you're supposed to do. But how you're going to do that, you need some filters in place. Now, I won't go through it again for the sake of time, but in this passage, he gives some of these filters. In verses 3 and 5, he talks about who not to support. In verses 11 through 15, he gives more of who not to support. As you read through that, if you have questions, please come talk with me and we can dialogue more. But he gives a, a word here that says, look, the church is not going to indiscriminately give to anybody that asks. The church is rather, in a godly way, discriminately going to give to certain folks. And in verses 9 to 10, he gives a description of the kind of widow the church should support. Let me read that so you hear it. In verse 9 and 10, it says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So Paul's saying, look, there's only so much you can do. Here's who I need you to identify. Take women, widows, who have no children, no grandchildren, no support system. Make sure that they're faithful followers of Jesus and that you're not just going to be funding them for a lifetime of sin. Make sure that they've proven themselves to be faithful followers of Jesus, faithful to their husbands, good moms, the kind of women who are known for a reputation of good works, who wash the feet of the saints, meaning no service is beneath them, who have extended hospitality to strangers, have opened their doors to people in need. That's the kind of woman that you want to enroll onto this list and who in turn will help serve the church as well, right? This is the kind of widow that you should seek to support. More that we could say about that for the sake of time that I won't. So at the least, I, I want to say two words of application from that before we move on. For one, it means that there's wisdom in the scriptures 
that us as a church and our leaders ought to wisely discriminate who and how we support. But a second word I think from this text also applies to our women, particularly to younger women. You'll have a tendency when you read this text to tune out because you're not over 60 and you're not a widow and how does this text apply to you? But I do want you to notice there's a description of the kind of widow that is pleasing to God. Now you're not there yet, but most likely you will be there. Because if the stats tell us anything, it tells us that we men wear out faster and quicker. And in all likelihood, you will be a widow one day. And the vision that this text has is for a church like Seven Mile Road to be filled on that day when it arrives many years from now with many godly, saintly, sweet widows. Right? That this would be the kind of description of what you're like. And if you're paying attention and if you're discerning, you'll notice this is not who she becomes when she's 60. She's this at 60, and it's a description of the kind of woman she was when? When she was in her 20s and her 30s and her 40s. That this is the kind of woman she was so that by the time she's this godly, wise, saintly, sweet, old, gray-haired widow, you could be saying that's who she was all throughout her life. I think this text gives you a vision for the kind of woman Jesus is calling you to be. As we said two weeks ago, a woman adorned with good works, known for her character. So the first reason he gives is that the neglect that the Ephesians were doing, and if we did this, would be a huge burden on the church. And a second reason he gives, and I'll move through this quickly, is because this kind of a denial, this kind of a, a neglect, rather, was a denial of the faith. This kind of a neglect was a burden on the church, but this kind of neglect was also a denial of the faith. Look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, you are in the church. You claim to be a part of the household of God. And yet even the folks outside in the city, the pagans, the unbelievers, even they know that they ought to take care of their parents. And yet you who claim to know God don't. So you're not doing what God's family should do. You're not even doing what unbelievers know naturally to do. You're worse than an unbeliever. And this kind of a neglect means that you don't get what it means to be in the household of God. Right? I want to say this. How does God treat the members of his household? How has God cared for his family? How has God provided for his relatives? Did he not send his son and at great cost to himself provide for their every need? Did he not give till he had nothing left to give? So then how are you going to be a member of God's household and yet not care for the members of your household? How are you going to be a member of God's household and experience the extravagant care of God to his relatives and yet provide no care to yours? 
Paul's saying to do that means that you've denied the faith. You don't get the faith. He's not being harsh, and, and here's why. It's because if faith in Jesus is real in your heart, it's going to be lived out. Jesus is going to spill out in your relationships, even your closest relationships. If faith in Jesus is real, it's going to make impact in your home. Hear that. If you've reduced Christianity to a set of beliefs you've got to download into your brain, I want you to know the Bible says the demons have those same beliefs downloaded into their brain. And they are not members of God's household. It's not beliefs that make you a member of God's household. It's that these beliefs have taken root in your heart and they bear fruit in your life. And if they don't, they've not taken root in your heart. And you don't truly believe in Jesus. If you read through 1 Timothy, Paul's got this bullseye on the Christian home and he's, and he's got this laser-like focus on the home. And for him, the home matters. Because for him, the home is a litmus test of whether you are truly a Christian. Please don't ignore that. Your home is a litmus test for whether you are really a Christian. In chapter 3, when he talks about elders, he says, you've got to make sure, watch their home. When he talks about deacons, watch their home. Why? Because the home is a litmus test for whether you get this. If this thing is true in here and here, it will be lived out in the home. So, brothers and sisters at Seven Mile Road, what does your home say about your faith in Jesus? What does your relationship with your husband or with your wife or with your sons or your daughters or with your mother or your father or extended relatives, what do those things say about your faith in Jesus Christ? Because your home is a litmus test for whether you truly believe or whether you just have the belief of demons. For Paul, if this thing is not being lived out in home, in your most closest proximity of relationships, then he says you've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. The reason is, listen, it would make little sense for you to call me brother in church and yet have no care for brother at home. It would make very little sense for you to take mothers and fathers in the church, and that's what we are, and treat them as mothers and fathers if you do not care for mother and father at home. It would make very little sense for us to take strangers and treat them as family if we take family and treat them as strangers. That would make no sense. And Paul says, that's a denial of the faith. That doesn't, that's not consistent. That's not what it's like to be in the household of God. And so instead of the kind of neglect that is a burden on the church or a denial of the faith, Paul says, here's what I want you to do. Let me read you this one verse. I'll say a couple of quick things and then we'll be done. Instead of the neglect that becomes a burden on the church or is a denial of faith, Here's what I want you to do. Listen to verses 3 and 4. Here's what should characterize the household of God. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. He says this, 
Instead of dumping mom and dad, as complex as the circumstances may be, and I don't presume to know everyone's stories or the circumstances or the situations, I'm simply saying the gospel has to bear on that. But he's saying instead of dumping them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to care for them, and doing so, he says, will do two things. It'll make a return to your parents, and it'll be pleasing to God. That doing this will make a return to your parents. That's the scripture's way of saying you'll be able to return to them much of what they have done for you. I, I was in a class and I heard a poem that could capture this much better than I could articulate it. So I'm going to read you this short poem to give you an idea of what it looks like or, or the perspective of making a return to your parents. This is a poem from an older mother to her now adult children. She says this, To my children, when I spill some food on my nice clean dress or maybe forget to tie my shoe, please be patient and perhaps reminisce about the many hours I spent with you. When I taught you how to eat with care plus tying laces and your numbers too, dressing yourself and combing your hair, those were precious hours spent with you. So when I forget what I was about to say, just give me a minute or maybe two. It probably wasn't important anyway and I would much rather listen just to you. If I tell the story one more time and you know the ending through and through, please remember your first nursery rhyme when I rehearsed it a hundred times with you. When my legs are tired and it's hard to stand or walk the steady pace that I would like to do, please take me carefully by my hand and guide me now as I so often did for you. That's the text. The text is saying, look, you have an opportunity to make a return to parents who invested so much of their life for you. And you be patient in their elderly years the way they were patient in your younger years. And when you do that, it's pleasing to God. Pleasing to the God who said, honor your father and mother. Pleasing to the God who said, widows are near and dear to my heart. And when you do that, you do that which is pleasing to God. If you're a member of Jesus' household, your heart's desire is, what can I do to please the Lord? And Jesus is saying right here, here's how you can please me. It'll be hard. It'll be trying. It'll be difficult. There's all kinds of complications. But when you write your elderly mom a check or when you bring dad home from the hospital or you help feed your grandfather, these things are pleasing to the Lord. So for some of us, that'll have direct application today. For some of us, it'll be a few days or a few years from now, but that day is coming. And when that day arrives, may we remember that if we are members of God's household, then we ought to care for the members of our household as he cared for the members of his. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, I thank you and together our hearts give you thanks for our parents. I think that would be obedient to your word, to honor them, even in our hearts here, gratitude for them. A lot of our stories weren't perfect. A lot of it is filled with pain, but a lot of them are also filled with many blessings we did not deserve, and for that we give you thanks. We pray as a church, even for widows in this room, we thank you for godly, saintly, sweet widows. 
We pray for the women in this room that even in their young age they would live the kinds of lives that fit the description of a woman known for her good works, a reputation for godliness, faithful to the Lord and to her husband, managing her household well, caring for children, hospitable to strangers, washing the feet of the saints, caring for those who are afflicted. Oh, Father, let that be the description of the women at Seven Mile Road Church. Let the men at Seven Mile Road Church be godly men who care for their relatives, who work hard to provide for those who are entrusted to their care in life and in death. And let us be a household of God, a family that cares for one another as you have cared for your family through the giving of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.